Welcome to the Grace Life Fellowship podcast. This past Sunday at Grace Life Fellowship, Pastor Frank started a new series called Being Thankful, leading up to Thanksgiving. His first message in the series is called An Attitude of Contentment and Rest. And we're happy to share it with you now. Here's Pastor Frank. Well, the Thanksgiving, well, the whole holiday season is upon us, being kicked off, of course, by Thanksgiving. My goodness. Um, Did you hear about the Mexican magician who just gained international fame? He was before a crowd, and he told them, I can make myself disappear before y'all count to three. He didn't say y'all, but, you know. And so he's okay, everybody, count. And the audience went, one. He goes, no, 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 no. En espanol. So the crowd went, uno, dos. And he vanished without a trace. So, um, (laughs) you're all thankful, right? (laughs) Thanksgiving is a wonderful holiday. I mean, we get to gather together with friends and family, spend the day together, feast on incredible food until we're sitting around like stuffed pigs. And then we get to have dessert. (laughs) Great holiday. Great, great holiday. You know, because it forces us to do that. Uh, Far too many of us are just too, too busy with all that's on our plate. (laughs) No pun intended. You know, at the end of the day, for most of us, it's, it's been helter-skelter, and it's so helter-skelter that all too often it's, it's a fast-food meal or a, a microwave meal, and, and dinner, what was supposed to be a, a meal uh, of gathering and fellowship is something that we hurry through because then there's homework and bills to pay and, and all the other stuff that's still on the plate. And by the end of the day, if we do have any semblance of free time, not only our bodies, but also our minds are so exhausted that the only thing we are really interested in doing is plopping down in front of the TV with maybe a little sip of herbal tea, or if you're free in Christ, a little sip of wine, and go into neutral. So Thanksgiving's a great holiday by forcing us to be together. It's wonderful. But it's, I think, an even greater holiday because it beckons us in a very real way, forces us when we pause. If even for just a very short time to do what ought to be for all of us a lifestyle. And that is to reflect on how ridiculously graced we are by God and thank him for all that grace. We all too often run through the day without an attitude of gratitude for that which he's given us. 
Thanksgiving is an internal issue. It's an attitude. It's a, it's a mindset. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks within, so he will be. But it's not automatic or spontaneous. Colossians chapter 3 tells us to set our mind. Philippians chapter 4 says to fix our mind. Romans 12 says to renew our mind. So having an attitude or mindset of thanksgiving is actually an act of the will. The thanksgiving is accomplished internally with that choice to set our minds on the grace of God. But it's actually sourced, if you will, externally. In response to what we've come to know or what we have experienced. You know, Paul asked the Corinthians a very pointed question in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He asked them this. What do you have that you didn't receive? Wow. Think about that. What do you have that you didn't receive? And the implication, of course, is, is quite obvious. Nothing. Without God, we have nothing. Life which we possess, the breath that we just took, the beat of our hearts which just occurred. And we could go on and on and on, my friends. It's, it's all a gift. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I, I think Paul said, in everything give thanks. Because doing so, I think, is a, is a recognition, an affirmation in our hearts that needs to be made to our hearts. That without God, we've got nothing and we would be nothing. So as those who've come to know God through Christ, as those who in this assembly have received and recognized the ridiculous grace of God that's been extended to us, I believe we should be the ones who lead the way in possessing, professing, and practicing an attitude of gratitude. So what I want to do over the next three weeks as we approach this great holiday of Thanksgiving is I want to direct our hearts and minds on being thankful to God. Being thankful to God. And each week what we're going to do is take a different arena of life as our focus to accomplish that and remember how God has blessed us, gifted us, and transformed us with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Today I want to focus with thanksgiving on the glory, my friends, that he has contented us or rested us. Remember Matthew chapter 11, what did Jesus say? Are you weary? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Frank's free translation. Are you in a position where you can't pull it off anymore? Come to me. And I will rest you. That's how the Greek should really be translated. 
So I want to delve this morning into how he has rested us. What he has rested us from. How he has contented us through his finished work in the cross and resurrection. So let's pray. Father, thank you for thanksgiving. Thank you for an event on the calendar that forces us to reflect and to ponder how good you are to us. How good you are to us in spite of us. Father, in this short time this morning, may you open our hearts and minds and prompt our will to live in an attitude of gratitude and live in the rest and contentment of the finished work of Christ. That's our prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. I said, you know, not long ago, I, I had to get a new Bible. I had completely worn out a particular section of it. When I received the Lord Jesus Christ by faith many years ago, I, I tore into the New Testament, as we all need to do. It is the New Testament that offers to us the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It is the New Testament that defines itself as good news. And if it's good news, we really need to hear it in a world where much of what we hear is bad news. And then when I went to seminary, I continued to dive into the New Testament. And then when I was allowed the privilege of pastoring my first two churches, I bathed in the New Testament and, and I bathed the saints, if you will, in the glory of the New Testament. I mean, after all, Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is the answer. I mean, I'm reminded of this little child in Sunday school, and it was the Easter season. And the Sunday school teacher asked the class, all right, class, what is it that hops around in the forest, has big pink ears and a bushy little tail and brings candy eggs to all the kids? And one little boy raised his hand. She says, yes, what's the answer? And he says, well, he says, it sure sounds like the Easter Bunny, but I know the answer has got to be Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. But what's the question? He's the deliverer. But I don't think we're really going to apprehend what that means until we fully embrace what he's delivered us from. Amen. And so by spending all my time in the New Testament, I was missing out on what the problem was for which he was the solution. Until I came to a point in my life where I was having some real personal struggle. And the Holy Spirit made me deeply aware of my inability to cope in those struggles with my own resources. And the Holy Spirit graciously opened my eyes to the severity of the problem with which I had been dealing with ever since my birth and which in reality all of us struggled with. You see, Jesus got, of, got us out of trouble 
But Adam is the one who got us into trouble. And so over the next several years, I tore into the early pages of Genesis, reading, meditating, and praying over those first few chapters. So much so that the pages in my Bible tore free from the binding. And that was okay for my study. But when I went to teach somewhere, I turned the people in attendance to Genesis chapter 3 to share with them what the Holy Spirit was sharing with me. And we were going to read the passage, but when I turned to Genesis 3, Genesis 3 was missing out of my Bible. It had fallen out. And so I went to read, and there was nothing to read. (laughs) Fortunately, I'd spent so much time, I was able to somewhat paraphrase it. Why are those early pages of Genesis so important? Because they tell us, and this is key, not just what Adam did, but the consequences of what he did. You see, I think we as human beings, and especially as believers, focus on the behavior, focus on the event. If you were raised in church at all, you know this. The language was very clear. He sinned, he sinned, he sinned. We're so sin conscious. And I don't don't want to make light of that. I mean, sin is wrong. But isn't the much bigger issue the effect of the sin? Uh, Maybe I could illustrate it. The ocean floor shifts. That's an event. But now there are tsunami waves on the way, bringing death and devastation. Much bigger issue. Let me tell you, as a parent, it bothered me when my children disobeyed me. Of course it did. But what bothered me more, my friends, was the consequences they were going to have to experience because of their disobedience. I don't think that's original to me. I think that's the heart of our father. Oh, sin bothers him. Of course it does. But his heart is so full of goodness and so full of compassion that he doesn't fixate on how dare somebody violate him and his will. His love is so great, he's more concerned about the consequences that are coming those people's way. And that's where Genesis comes in. Because Genesis spells out those consequences. Genesis spells out the problem for which Jesus is the solution. Jesus points out the question for which he is the answer. And I really believe that if we would get to the pages of Genesis and spend some time there. It would magnitude the love and the deliverance which he offered to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those who understand their great need will be those who worship the best. Does that make sense? So this morning what I want to do is focus on just three of those consequences. And I hope it captures all of our attention. We could focus on so many, but just these three major ones. First of all, when Adam sinned, he died. 
And because we are in the loins of Adam, the Bible teaches us that when he sinned, we sinned. When he died, we died. As a race of people, we lost life with God and the life that we could experience from God. We entered into separation from God with a horrible, horrible consequence. John 5, 26 says God has life in himself. His very attribute, his nature is life. That means he does not need anyone or anything. He lives in perfect contentment. That's incredible. Because I've heard some ridiculous things over the course of my time as a Christian. You ever ponder the idea of why did God create us in the first place? I've heard people say, well, he created us to worship him. He doesn't need your worship. He created us to serve him. And he doesn't need your service. I mean, think about the ridiculousness of that. Why did you have kids? Did you have kids to worship you? You're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> you have kids to serve you? You're going to find that out real quick that that's a path you don't want to go down. Why did he have kids? Well, why did you have kids? You had kids because you wanted to share your life and love with them. That's why God had kids. He had kids because he wanted to share his life and love. And, and now, because of the sin of Adam, there's no life to be had. I mean, if you separate from God, who is the source of life, you will experience death as a natural consequence. And that's exactly what Adam plunged us into, the experience of death. And it's there every day of our lives in a fallen world. Death comes at us. The loss of dreams loss of health, the betrayal of love, and on and on it goes. Secondly, when he sinned, when he ate from that forbidden tree, he placed us all into an economy of living that we were never designed for. We were designed for an economy of receiving from God all that he is to all that we need. But Adam plunged us into an economy of achieving performing, acquiring, meriting for ourselves independent of God. An economy of law. Do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. And it dominates our lives and drives our lives and, and it places its demanding call on our lives. Thirdly, and perhaps most devastating of all, he delivered us over to the lie. The hideous, distorted thinking that we could be as God, apart from God. The thinking that life revolves around us, that we're the center of the universe, that we're the supreme being, that we're capable of functioning in complete self-sufficiency. Put those three things together, my friends, and you have a recipe for utter discontent and restlessness. Think about it. I live in sin and death. That's where I dwell. It's the sphere in which I exist. 
Yet I mistakenly believe that I'm sufficient and capable with my own resources to generate life by attempting to perform what I can never ultimately perform because I lack the ability to do so. Can I put it simply? I'm trying to be God without God. That's very hard to do. To try to be God when you're not God. The pressure each day is unrelenting. The effort put forth is never enough. The fear of the failure is overwhelming. And when there is failure, it looms so large. And it can cripple us and devastate us. Oh, we we can keep busy to mask it. But the end of the day, when the head hits your pillow and it's quiet, I guarantee you those failures will haunt you. It's like being on a treadmill that keeps getting higher and higher and and faster and faster as we strive to be what we can never be and attain what we can never attain, and it will wear you out. My friends, is it any wonder Jesus asked, are you tired? Are you weary? Have you looked beneath the facade and taken a good, honest look at what your life is really like apart from me? Fortunately, thankfully, he didn't just ask the question. He provided the answer. Come to me. Just come to me and I'll give you rest. I will content you. How? Very simply by reversing and restoring the devastation in those three arenas that Adam brought to us. Through his finished work on the cross with his death and resurrection, number one, He brought us back to life. First John chapter five, what does it say? He who has the son has life. That's not what it says. It hasn't been translated correctly. It's he who has the son has the life. The life, John 10, that is abundant. The the life, John 17, 3, which is eternal life, the life with which God himself lives life, has been placed into us. For Colossians chapter 3 says, Christ is our very life. I love 2 Peter 1. One of these days we're going to have to teach 2 Peter. Listen to the language. His divine power. I love that right off the bat. Your power, insufficient. My power, more than sufficient. All right. What's wrong with you? (laughs) His divine power has given. Given. Freely. Not about what you do. Not about what I do. About what he does. His divine power has given to us all. What a great word. Nothing held back. All that pertains to life and godliness. 
Well, well, Peter, what do you mean? Let me put it another way so you'll get it. We have become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, my goodness. That in itself ought to be enough to inspire thanksgiving for the rest of our lives. But there's more. Secondly, he delivered us from the economy of achieving and acquiring that Adam placed us into. Romans chapter 7 verse 4 says, He made us to die to the law, that we might be married to him who rose from the dead, that we might, and I would add the word, finally bear fruit in the Christian life. Fruit, Galatians 5. That we might bear love and joy and peace and gentleness and meekness and kindness and patience and self-control. It's going to make my life attractive. Does it blow your mind? He's going to make your life something that people are going to want to be around. They can smell life oozing out of us. Incredible. Romans 6.14, we're no longer under law. Can't say it any more clear. We're under grace. Restored to the economy of receiving all that he is to all that we need. Our performing, our striving, our laboring is over. It is finished. And in the Greek, what does that mean? It means it's finished. Hebrews 4.10, anyone who enters into God's rest also rests from their works as God did. On the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. Adam's first full day of life was the seventh day. Can you hear God? Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get it? Hint, hint, hint. Hello? <laughs> You were designed to live in rest. Again, more than enough to foster Thanksgiving. But there's more. Thirdly, he has refuted the lie that we shall be as God and restored us to our true identity. John 1, 11 and 12, as many as received him, to them gave he the right. I love that word. The authority to be called a child of God. Oh. But not just a child. And not just God. Say, so what do you mean by that, Frank? Frank. When you read the Old and New Testaments, you find that there are many names for God. Elohim, mighty God. Adonai, sovereign ruler. You can't crawl into the lap of that gang. In John 17, Jesus said this. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Father, I have given them your name. You read the Bible from beginning 
to end, you will find that that word father is strangely absent on the lips of God's people. And when you add the economy of the old covenant with its holy of holies and the veil to separate sinful people from God, where there is only one man in the entire world that can go into the presence of God behind that veil. And he only goes into that presence with blood. And he only goes into that presence having confessed all of his sin before he ventures in. And just in case, do you know what the Old Testament Israelites did? They put a rope around that priest and jingle bells on him. Why? So that as he walked around and did his priestly work, they could hear the bells and know that he is alive. But if he had gone in with unconfessed sin, there are no jingle bells. That's why the rope is there. Ain't nobody going in after that boy. They're going to drag him out. This was God. And Jesus scandalized the religious world by calling him Father. Now, in John 17, he doesn't tell us what that name is. He just says, I gave the name. But I think the rest of the New Testament does. We just finished a study of Galatians chapter 4. A passage which rocked my little religious world. Because he said the Holy Spirit has been sent into our lives. To tell us that we're the children of God. Mm -mm. If you were here, you remember. We delved into it. And we saw that that Greek word literally means to cry out. It could literally be translated scream. It's a scream of passion. It's a scream of unbelief. This is too good to be true. I think it's a scream to get our attention because we don't hear God so well. We hear God through all kinds of religious filters. And the Holy Spirit is screaming, God, this omnipotent, mighty creator, Adonai, Elohim of the universe is revealing to you that he's your papa. Why screams for centuries. You can't go near that God or you're dead. But remember when he died, there was an earthquake and the veil tore and enter into this. My dear friend John Russell pointed this out to me years ago. That veil didn't tear bottom up. That's what should have happened with an earthquake. It tore top down. My friend John suggested, I believe that was father ripping that veil. And what he was saying is, now not only you have access to me, but I finally have access to you. To be to you all that I've wanted to be, but sin kept us separated. And now Romans 8, we're told that if we will embrace that reality, our spirit will scream back. Same word as in Galatians 4. We, we're, we have to cry out. 
We, we have to scream in awe and wonder and glory. It, it can't be contained. Oh, my friends, the people of grace ought to be the best worshipers on the planet because we know what's really happened. Our scream is saying to him, we believe you, God's our papa. And so the striving and the writhing and the agonizing and the worrying, it's all over. We can rest now. We stand content now. In him, we have all that we need to face life in a fallen world courageously and confidently. First Peter 5, what does it say? It says, cast all. There's that word again. All your care. And you know what the word literally means? To hurl. He wants you to do that. In my own life, the vestiges of my mistaken belief, the vestiges of my lie that I shall be as God, when the burdens have come into my life, do you know how I've given them to God? Like this. Why? So I can keep a handle on him and fix him if he doesn't. Oh, don't look at me like that. You do it too. <laughs> God says, don't do that. Take them. And I can't do this with my shoulders anymore. Hurl them. Let go of them. Let them fly far away from you. Why? Because he cares for you. He really, really cares for you. Jesus tried to make this clear in Matthew. He, says he, he knows the, the number of hairs on your head. He knows when a, a little sparrow falls to the ground. Don't you understand? He knows you. He loves you and he cares for you. Remember Matthew 7. Which one of you fathers, if your son asks for bread, would give them a stone? Which, which one of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, you'd give him a snake? And the implication is you wouldn't do that. The paraphrase of Jesus would be something like this. If you, who fall so short of goodness, know how to give good gifts, how much more so does your Father, who is total and infinite goodness, know how to give good gifts? You know how we know we, that this is true? Because the greatest gift he could give us, he gave us. He gave us himself. You realize there's no bigger gift that you can give. I shared this story years ago. I got four rugrats who are not rugrats anymore. They're big. But when they were little tiny babies and they would come to me and say, Daddy, I love you. Can I have an ice cream? Didn't bother me. They were little kids. But you know, if Ben, who's 32, and Leslie, who's 35, come to me now and say, hey, Dad, I love you so much. Can I have 100? That's going to bother me. Why? Because they never grew up. They're still coming to me for what I can do for them. And they're failing to understand that I want to be so much more than that to them. 
I don't want to just give them things. I want to give them myself. That's God. And the great glory is, my friends, he's already given us himself. We've just got to understand it and believe it. I want to close our time by turning your attention to Matthew 6. Would you all turn there? And let's read this. I've got a new Bible, so I can actually have it in my Bible. Matthew 6, and let's go to verse 25. For this reason I I say to you, don't be anxious for your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you're going to put on. And the idea there is stop worrying. Yeah, it's a complex world. Yeah, it's a difficult world. It can be a hurtful world. But I'm bigger. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26. Look, it's a great word. Stop for a minute and think. Stop for a minute and look and learn. Look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. But your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth so much more than they are? And what about all this worry you have? Is it going to add a single breath to your life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Look at, look at the flowers of the field. They're not toiling. They're not spinning. But even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself in the beauty that those flowers have. I mean, if God so dresses and adorns the, the grass of the field that's alive today, here tomorrow, thrown in the furnace. Why don't he do so much more for you? And then there's the issue. Faith. You're not believing what you know. Don't be anxious. Don't, don't worry. Live in my rest. Live in my contentment that I've given you. Live in the relationship I have with you as father to child. Don't go running around. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What about tomorrow? All those things, unbelievers. That's what they have to do. They're still living under the lie that they are as God and that they're under the law, that they've got to achieve it and they've got to find life because they're living in death. That's what they have to do. But you have a father. He knows what you need. Seek him. Seek him. All those things, they'll be taken care of. Don't don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough trouble of its own. Today's trouble, let it be enough to drive you to him. And just focus on that. Dan Stone 
I had the privilege of speaking with him on several occasions. Made a tremendous declaration in his book, The Rest of the Gospel. He said, you know, there are a lot of buts in the world. Most of them not good because of what follows the but. Your real belief system is found in what comes after the but. God loves me, but there's so many bad things happening right now. God cares for me, but I feel so all alone. You see, what you really believe is what's following the but. So think with me. We've been given life. We've been set free from the law, from the economy of achieving. We no longer live under the lie that we are as God and that it's all on us to make it through this world. So how should we say it? Oh, we need to be honest. It's not the world we were designed to live in. We need to be honest. I am so scared sometimes. But God is with me. That's what I'm going to leave in my mind. God is with me. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, it happens a lot. But God himself is my provision. That's what's going to make my feet take the steps. I, I don't know which way to turn sometimes. But God's going to lead me. He's promised that. But God. It's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, my friends. We are in him and he is in us. And we are at rest. Believe it. We stand contented. Believe it. And act on it. When my fourth little girl was born, it was a very tumultuous first year. Not that the rest hasn't been tumultuous too. This week was tumultuous. I wrote her story. It was published in a book called A Sure Grip for a Wild Ride. And there were so many unanswered questions because the disease is so rare. I ended the book with these words. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And the one who holds tomorrow is holding us. And my bride and I will dance again. And no matter what you're going through, so will you because of him. We will dance again. Father, we want to have an internal attitude of thanksgiving to you. You are worthy of that. But I don't know if we're ever going to 
accomplish that amidst the fallen, devastating world we live in. If we don't understand what you've delivered us from, open our eyes to all that we lost in Adam. All that we gained in Adam that we really don't need to gain. But don't stop there, Father. Open our eyes to the fact that that's all past. Because we're in Christ. You have not only redeemed us from what we lost in Adam, you've reversed it. You've restored it. You've given us back life. You put us back in the economy we were supposed to live in. And you've refuted the lie that we're God and opened our eyes to the glory that we're just children. But we're not orphans. Not anymore. We have a father who has promised us and already given to us all that we need because you've given us yourself. And that's not just enough. It's more than enough. May we live, Father, in an attitude of rest and contentment because of who you are to us in Jesus' name. That does it for today's message. Pastor Frank will be back again here at Grace Life Sunday as he continues his series, Being Thankful. And we'll share that again with you next Tuesday here on the podcast. And don't forget this coming Friday, another edition of Conversations in Grace. This time, Tim and Jesse sit down with our new youth minister, Jay Patel. We hope you'll join us then. 